with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everyone, welcome to the Phronesis podcast. Thanks for checking in wherever you are in the world. Today, I have Dr. Theo Dawson. She is the executive director of Lectica Inc. Dr. Dawson, a recovering serial entrepreneur whose midlife crisis led to an advanced degree in human development, has practiced midwifery, runs several businesses, taught at Harvard and Hampshire College, published numerous peer-reviewed academic articles, and received several awards for her developmental research. During the last 25 years, Theo and her colleagues, using novel developmental research methods, have created, one, a powerful approach to measuring learning and development, two, several written response assessments that measure the complexity level of real-world skills, three, a universal learning model, VCall plus seven, and we'll learn about that, and four, a fundamental learning practice, micro VCalling that optimizes skill development. She and her team are dedicated to ensuring that humans of all ages have an opportunity to realize their full developmental potential by making these tools freely available to anyone who teaches the world's children. I came across Theo when she was in conversation with Jonathan Reams and Peter Senge. And it was a video where I just, I thought, this is a person who is really going to be interesting to have a conversation with. And then I went to some of her writing, and I believe the first 
piece I, I read was, and I'll put the link to this in the show notes, Theo, was you're writing about VUCA and that was on Medium. And I thought, whoa, she has a very, very cool mind. I need to have a conversation with her. Theo, how did you get this cool mind? Where did that come from? Strife. <laughs> Strife. <laughs> Strife. I love it. (laughs) Obviously, you have a passion for this space of learning. Have you always had that passion? Where does that curiosity come from? What's the source? What do you think? Well, I've always had a personal passion for learning and was fortunate enough to be able to keep it, which, you know, I I mean, I I was a midwife for many, many years and every baby I ever met had a, a passion for learning, but somehow the world kind of tends to have its way with our passion for learning and it gets lost along the way for a lot of people. But I always say I was in that 20% of people for whom schooling was kind of right there in, in what you might call the Goldilocks zone Uh, where I could learn things well enough to be able to take them and go play with the ideas and put them to work. And I think that that's where we'd really like everybody to be able to be. And so my sense of the joy of learning and you know, how much the satisfaction being a a learner and being someone who can get that sense of mastery that comes from taking what you're learning and putting it to work uh, gives to me, I I want to share it with the rest of the world. And I guess it started with sharing it with my children and trying to figure out what, what would be an optimal learning environment for them when they were born. And then observing in my midwifery practice, how education was affecting other children. And then I burnt out. Here's part of the strife. I burned out of the midwifery practice (laughs) and ended up going and and working in a building an advertising business in Los Angeles. Wow. Hollywood of all places. (laughs) Ah. And just living that kind of, I I, I called it my time in the real world, you know, just seeing how the world operates and, and understanding that better. And then finally deciding this is just not enough. There's not enough learning in this for me. There's not enough growth in this for me. It sent me back to school. And I ended up at UC Berkeley being the only person admitted into the human development program that year, which was kind of weird. (laughs) (laughs) And having just a wonderful team of people who, once they could see, you know, my basic skills, basically let me do whatever I wanted to do. While I was there. So I had an amazing graduate experience at UC Berkeley and ended up really reviving that passion that I had for my children and began to really want that for all children. And I could see that the way that education was going at the time was moving further and further away from making it possible for all children to to have the kind of experience with learning that I had had. So yes, it feels to me like stealing someone's birthright when you take that away from them. Wow. And we must stop, period. Well, I want to start really kind of at the fundamentals, if we could, because I think in this video that I watched with you and Peter Senge and Jonathan Reams, you said something that just, it's the simplest definition I've ever heard. And it was beautiful. And again, I mean, I, I'm almost 50 years old. I should have heard this by now, or this should have hit me this, this easily, especially given the space that I'm in. But you say, we define skills as something you can practice. Boom. Yes. Simple, easy. Can you give me some other 
just core definitions of just foundational definitions of how you think about this space. I mean, skills, these are something you can practice. Are there other things that yes. you have simplified to that essence? Because <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> well, you shouldn't feel too bad about not stumbling across this before. It took us many years of research to do enough observations where that became rather obvious. And of mm. course, as soon as something obvious becomes obvious, it's a no duh. <laughs> and you wonder why did it take so many years to get to this no duh? Well, I can't find, I mean, you know, competencies, skills. I mean, y- y- there's yeah. all these words that I don't think we even have clarity around yes. or shared yes. understanding, which then makes this so incredibly difficult. It's because, really hard. Right? Yeah, it's really hard. And, and this is true of all words. There is no word for which everyone has the same meaning. (laughs) If you're a developmental researcher, that's one of the first things you learn is that you cannot trust words. (laughs) You have to look deeper for meaning. Yes. So that is, it's interesting because you kind of hit the nail on the head. We started out uh, at the very beginning teaching everybody about development because we thought, I thought in my naivete that everybody would immediately learn about development and then understand it the way that I did and be able to put it to work right away in useful ways. Yes. But that turns out not to be true. Not trying to teach people about development. It's complex. It took me many years of graduate school to understand it adequately. And even today, I'm still learning more and more about what it means. So only a few people in the world are going to do that and get to that level of understanding of something. So about, you know, about halfway through this journey, I woke up one day and I thought, that's not what we should be focusing on. We should be focusing on things people can do now, as much as possible, things that people can do now with as little training as possible. And that's when we began the journey of coming up with small, simple things that we could have quite a bit of shared meaning around. Because they didn't require learning a whole bunch of stuff that you can put to work in your life or that we can put to work in assessments or in assessment reports that support development. So Mm. development is the goal, but the actions and the language is all about the doing. Okay. So so we've created we've created a lot of things that we've given our own names to because we don't want the names to compete with other understandings of the names. (laughs) <laughs> that are also very simple ideas. So we have this notion of the virtuous cycle of learning, okay, which is based off of work that Jean Piaget did way back in the 1940s and 50s, where he was trying to really understand the mechanism of how we built knowledge over time. And now it is, is increasingly supported by the neurosciences, where a ton of work is coming out that really supports almost everything that he said about how this process works. And it's basically the idea that there's a kind of cycle through which we learn in which as we bring new information in, we either can fit it into what we already know really well, like we just plug it into lots of things we already know, or we have to kind of rearrange what we know in order to make sense of it. Like, so we have to make a kind of new meaning in order to make sense of it that we don't already have, we can't just plug it in easily. And that the way that all of this happens is through a process that's a kind of cyclic process Mm. where every time we encounter new information or a new experience, 
it's getting curated <laughs> in a way. <laughs> and and this is happening automatically. So when a baby's learning to walk, you could see that in action. I've got some beautiful videos of kids discovering mirrors the first time, for example, <laughs> where you can literally watch little tiny experiments that they're doing to figure out what's going on in the environment, which is just, it's astounding to see. That mechanism is that built-in mechanism for learning, which we now call the dopamine opioid cycle. It's huh. kind of driving this. Say <laughs> more about that real quick. Let's detour there for a moment. Okay, so the dopamine opioid cycle is a cycle in the brain, probably maybe from a natural perspective, most used for learning and love. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) it makes sense. I'm not an expert on the love side of this, but there's some really compelling evidence that it plays a major role in love. You're an expert Um, on the result of the love side, your midwifery, uh, right? Oh, oh, some of that, yes. (laughs) Consequences of love. And, but, but it also is a, the fundamental process that supports learning. And the way that it works is just this wonderful, magical kind of dynamic that I just think is gorgeous, is that we have this, it's a kind of a cycle that involves alternating dopamine and op- opioid. So the dopamine, they call the striving hormone. Okay. The dopamine is the dri- it drives us. Okay. And then, interestingly enough, if and only if we have success often enough, which means also that we have failure often enough, mm-hmm. <laughs> then that will drive the release of dopamine in an optimal way that that releases the opioid. So you get a certain amount of satisfaction from that periodic achievement. If you achieve every single time, you stop getting the satisfaction and you want more and more of whatever it is. So that's, that's addiction. You know, you know what you're making me think of, because I literally I'm working on an article right now where we are working with a woman who's an expert in in games. But I'm thinking, oh, games totally recruit. Yeah, that's what's happening, right? That's exactly exactly what's happening when someone's playing a game and being rewarded in the next level and rewarded and 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 games recruit it really well. Advertising recruits it really well. Facebook recruits it really well. <laughs> yeah. Everything in our world recruits it except our educational system. <laughs> educational system. Kills it. Kills it. There's no dopamine or opioids. There's just. It kill it. They kill it in two ways. Two ways. There's two ways to kill it. One, you make learning really, really boring by making people just mostly memorize a lot of stuff really fast. Yeah. Yeah. That'll do it. <laughs> Or causing people to to win too often or fail too often and wow. providing extrinsic rewards rather than letting the intrinsic cycle do its job. So we're basically trained people to go looking for extrinsic rewards in our educational system, which is really it's it's a it's total it's a total disaster for our development as human beings. And I think we're seeing many of the consequences of the acceleration of that with high stakes testing in the United States 20 years ago. We're seeing it now. Like we're really seeing the effects of it now. And we've been researching in that area. But anyway, so the dopamine opioid cycle makes babies learn to walk, <laughs> even though they fall down and really hurt themselves a lot, usually. Yeah. yeah. Because they, the reward, that system is set up so that the reward happens just often enough. So the babies are rarely going to try anything that's so much too difficult for them that they're going to always fail and they're not going to see incremental progress. Right. So Mm. we already know how to do this. We are, you know, we are born knowing how to do this. 
And the result of this cycle in the in the physical world or the early world of a, world of a child, or the more physical, simple social world of a child, is that every little kid who's got a human normal environment learns to do a whole bunch of things like talking yeah. and walking and and oftentimes there are there are there's the internal, but there's also kind of someone in their external environment saying, "Yay, good job!" and and they're getting that too, right? They're also getting that and the love. Right. So yeah. love is is definitely in here in this yeah. case. As a matter of fact, if the love's not there, the development doesn't happen. So there's so this cycle is just so important. It's so intrinsically important. And we we let it fall out of education for you know, Kurt Fisher was convinced that literally only 20% of kids actually were able to stay in it during the educational process. And it may be fewer. I, I don't know if that's that's a ballpark estimate on his part, I think experiential rather than uh, specifically evidence-based, but we're observing something similar to that in our research as well. Mm. So as a consequence, we decided that we needed to reteach people how to do that. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I'm in. <laughs> and that's where micro calling comes in because what babies are doing is micro calling, but they're doing an unconscious version of it. It's driven just by all those physiological structures that are built into the brain. We also know that as we develop, our world becomes more abstract and complex. And the way that our, our unconscious brain you know, pulls information together and connects it all up can often be sub- suboptimal, not perfect, because we have these biases. And the biases are designed for a more physical, simple world. They're not, they're not really designed for the complexity of abstract thought. Yeah. So what we do is we teach people not only how to go back to getting the dopamine opioid cycle going again, but we teach them how to run the cycle so that they become the master of how the connections get made in their brain. Wow. And we do that with the simple thing where you set a goal, gather some information. You know, there's usually some kind of information you want to pull together, even if it's just stuff you already know. Gather some information, you know, reflect about what it is you're going to do to achieve the goal. And then take action, <laughs> you practice, do a practice, do something. And then after you have done the action, a conscious, very quick evaluation okay. of how well you did and what you can do better next time. And it sounds really simple, but we've been teaching it for a while. And it actually can be quite difficult for people to learn to do this, especially if they've been trained that learning is stuff. You know, like learning is about learning stuff. Yeah. It's, it can be quite challenging. But we're having quite a bit of success. And, and the course that we offer where we teach people how to do this is has built a lot of momentum over the last, it's only been around for a little over a year. Wow. And it's already built quite a bit of, of momentum. So it is interesting. In, in some of my work, I might I might have a conversation about a very, very simple problem solving model. And the participants, whether it's a CEO or an eighth grader, looks at you. Yes. Uh-huh. Great. I got it. Yep. I get it. Yep. That's easy. Then you put a shiny object in front of them and some type of task and everything's out the window. So that's my, that's my attempt at kind of agreeing with you in that shifting, shifting how the brain thinks about and engages in these cycles is it's, it's hard work. It's hard work. It feels like it's it, well, shifting the way we think is hard work, but micro V calling is easy because we're built to do it. So once yeah. people get, once they click into it, 
Yeah. Then it then it just takes over and <laughs> their life total life changes. <laughs> it's one of those truly transformative things once you learn how to do it. Everything looks different. And 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 because you're doing it in the moment in real time, the practice itself becomes automated and it becomes a very easy kind of learning to do where you don't really feel like you're expending a whole lot of extra effort. It's just naturally part of the process. But I want to go back to what you were saying about you teach people some stuff and then when it comes to doing, they can't do it. You know, for a very long time, we've we've privileged academic learning. So in schools, you very rarely actually build skills around the things that you learn. Mm. If you're doing any skill building at all, it's done at a very shallow level and you never really get any kind of expertise. So think of the yeah. labs, the science labs, Theo, where you just terrible. really... You're doing experiments that somebody else designed that's got an outcome that if you don't get it right, you're going to fail. That's that's not the kind of practice I'm talking about. Or in the context and, of like a college of business, we do, <clears throat> let's say it's a negotiation segment. You do one 30-minute exercise, and then that was the experience. Yeah, exactly. And, and, Quinn, and, Quinn yeah. you, would be, you should be doing negotiation constantly all the time through the <laughs> yes. entire program, right? <laughs> if you want to be skilled at it. Oh, now we've got some major evidence around this that I would like to have a chance to talk about at some point, but we create this illusion that we have learned something and that we have expertise when we have actually have no capability. And, and so what we say is that, you know, there's kind of hierarchy of learning. So there's just plain memorizing. So I can spit this formula back out. I can spit these words back out. I can give you the definition. There's learning with understanding. So there's getting it at an academic level, like, okay, these things fit together. I can see how they fit together. I've got a mental model of this that's fairly robust. But we say that's not yet quite learning. <laughs> mm. so, so the real learning is when you take that thing that you're learning and you learn how to put it to work in the world, that's where your brain gets connected. That's where you have that embodied experience of learning that recruits all of you into the process. Yeah, that's you can still ride a bicycle, even if you stop for 20 years kind of learning, yes. you know, and I, love, and I love that phrasing recruits all of you into the process. Yes. And so it, it is your emotional self. It's your sensory self. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's your kinesthetic self. And, and it is your conscious mind driving the way that we've created the model is the conscious mind that's kind of driving it. And, and instead of letting system one just network anything's the way it wants to we're constantly saying is that the way we want to remember this <laughs> when you say system one are you going to kahneman right there i'm going to kahneman yeah okay. yeah okay. so cool. if and and i don't really think the brain is quite divided up exactly this way but it's a wonderful heuristic yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we so if you think of the the system two as kind of your executive brain i'm the conscious part of you and i'm deciding things and thinking yeah. about stuff you think of system one is 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 the network. And you think of information coming in, it, most of the time when we have information coming in, if we don't add a micro call, it's just coming in and system one is just networking it based, based on its standard protocols, the way that it would ordinarily network it. So if you already have a bias in a certain direction, bam, that's where it's going to get connected. Gone. <laughs> yeah. So, and this is just the nature of the brain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but if you're engaging in micro calling as a, a, you know, as a, older child or an adolescent or an adult, you're after you do the action, after you do the practice, you're thinking, how did that go consciously? And that's your chance to break down 
useless connections and build up new ones. That's your chance. So micro V calling would almost be a habit of mind, correct? It's to- it becomes a habit of mind. And once it becomes a habit of mind, then you're learning all the time. Yeah. You're learning all the time from everything. There's some skills involved that you have to learn to, to habituate in order to make that all work. But yep. once, once you've got that, you know, once the train's rolling, <laughs> it just keeps rolling. And, and, and in, a, in a sense, you are addicted. In the finest sense, you become addicted because that dopamine opioid cycle is working for you. And when it's when you're doing little tiny things, all you know, tiny skills, it gives you a sense of satisfaction. When all of a bunch of a skill that you've been building for a long time comes together with another skill and there's that explosion of insight, you get a, a eureka moment. <laughs> In a very beautiful way, you have broken these things down into meta, mega, macro, mini, micro. <laughs> I mean, Theo, it is impressive. The skill universe. The skill universe. <laughs> it's a, it is. It is. Is right now an appropriate time to talk about some of that? Yes. Well, you're talking about our skill maps. Yeah. And we have a very particular way of approaching skills. We we look at a you know a, what would be considered to be a skill normally, like what people would call a skill, and usually what we call skills is usually a collection of skills that work together to a end. Yes. And we break those down into smaller and smaller and smaller skills until we get to the very tiniest skill. Yes. The tiniest skill is called a micro skill. And its definition is a skill you can practice in the moment, in real time. Okay. All right. So what is a micro skill for you in a particular skill area might be a macro skill for somebody else. They'd have to break it down even further to be able to do it in real time. So just for an example, take a decision-making process that, that you're using. Once you've mastered or, or become a virtuoso in a particular decision, we like virtuoso because virtuosos never really get to mastery. Like they're always reaching. <laughs> enough. So we like that term. If you are a virtuoso or approaching virtuosity in decision-making, doing the whole decision-making process is a, is a, is a micro skill in a sense, because you can do the whole thing in real time. Yeah. For, for another person... <laughs> we would have to break it down into tiny, tiny little pieces so that we could give them the tiny little skills that work, end up working together to create that larger skill. So a micro skill is not a thing you can point at and that's always a micro skill huh. because it's relative to the context and it's relative to the individual's level of skill. It's easy and complex at the same time. And our, in our assessment development for providing feedback on assessments, what we're always trying to do is figure out how do we tailor this feedback to this particular learner who's demonstrated a particular level of skill in these various areas? And that led us to starting to think about skills in this way. And then when we were building the new website with the latest version of all of our assessments the last couple of years, it, it, it occurred to me that it wouldn't hurt to share the skill maps that we were using to build the site with the public at large, because people, that was something I thought a lot of people could just grab a hold of and go and run with without learning anything else. Like if they just had that, that that would help them. And it's turned out to be the case. I think that our most popular article of all time is the one that talks about the collaborative capacity skill Mm. set and, and people have taken it and run with it. Teachers have written to us, you know, coaches and consultants have, have written to us to tell us what they're doing with it. And school principals are, asking us, how can I make this alive in my classroom? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so when yeah. you think about even approaching, let's say, so let's go down like, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Let's think about collaborative capacity right now. How do you then operationalize the micro skills? Are they, are they, is it the curriculum of life, so to speak? Again, is it, is it me learning to, to V call and then seeing this everywhere? In, and then once I see that micro skill, I build upon that. How do you operationalize it from a curricular standpoint? Well, I believe that there are probably many ways to do this sure. and lots of different places to come in from. Yeah. So I don't want to give, as a matter of fact, I think that way about everything. Because you'll notice I'm not creating a standard curriculum. Yes. Yep. I'm definitely not doing that. As a matter of fact, I'm I'm going to be doing a debrief of one of our assessments today. You know, the person's asking, so what's the right way to do this? And I'm like, no, there's not a right way to do this. There's your way to do this, my way to do it. <laughs> so what we really want, what usually happens is that people, let's say you're starting with the math. People look at the map and they go, oh my gosh, those skills over there, I could still use those at work this week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, I really yeah. want to build those. Those are really important to me right now. And, and so the oper- operationalizing there would be that we would provide them with some beginning micro vehicles that have been written up already for some of those skills, each of which is, you know, there, we have a few basic models for micro vehicles and we plug different things into them and uh, depending upon what the skill is. So so we would we have several of them that have already been created and we're constantly creating new ones to fill any gaps that that are that there are. But we, we give them a lot of support. We say, here, do this, do these four steps and do them over and over and over again. And that might be that their entry point. For someone else, they might come and take our, our VIP course where we teach V calling. And we literally teach people how to V call, not about V calling, but how to V call. Yes, um, yes. Build the skill, then, right? And that's a that's a, that's a great place to start because once you've got the skills already, then we give you a V call and you can be more, you can be better at it sooner. Yeah. So it's an it's just another way to get in. Other people find it just very very difficult to get there, get loose enough or comfortable enough to be able to try something new and learning. And this is often because of learning trauma that they have had as a consequence of the way the system rewards us. Interesting. Interesting. (laughs) Define that for me real quick. Just. Yeah. So you know about imposter syndrome. Yeah. I'm a a host of a podcast. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I think that many people who, who have gone through our school system in the last 20 years and even before that, but even more so in the last 20 years, have really been so focused on grades and test scores as their goal of learning and staying at A and staying at the top and being able to get into college and all of that stuff as their main way of thinking about education and learning that that they that they have they're terrified to be seen as falling below that ideal yeah and in order to be able to learn you have to take risks and fail <laughs> Right? And you have and, to and you fail. have to be vulnerable and you have right, to exactly. Yes. But after someone's been told, no, you may never fail, you will be punished. You will not be able to participate in society if you fail. After being told that over and over and over and over again, there's a real terror that people feel. Yep. And a lot of people who've who've been schooled like that will literally, you know, if I ask people, what does it feel like when you almost understand something? 
someone like me would say, let's go. (laughs) Someone who's been traumatized in that way will, will say shame. Mm. Talk about motivational, you know, like nothing motivates us so well as shame. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. How can I get more? (laughs) How can I get more of that? So when people come to us and they're up against that, then we want to create a really safe place yeah. for them to fail. And, and one of the reasons that we have got to the micro V call is that you can do a lot of micro V calling in private and get clicked into your dopamine opioid cycle and the reward system and get comfortable there before you have to expose yourself to others. Wow. Um, yeah. And so we're, we're trying to have an inroad for everybody into this work. And of course, we have a bunch of people who are trained to work with our assessments and every one of them is working in a different sector with different kinds of people, different age groups. And they're learning a lot about the differences between people and what works and what doesn't work. So I think eventually we'll know enough to be able to say, you know, here's a good plan for someone who's got this kind of approach and here's a good plan for someone who's got this kind of approach. We're not there yet. I said this, I said this yesterday, I think to conclude a podcast, I just love speaking with someone who's an expert in whatever they're an expert in. We have this gentleman in our life who is an expert at walking around our our house, telling us exactly what that plant is and when it needs to be pruned and what we need to do to help it thrive. Love it. Cool. Awesome. Yes. Let's, I have insane respect for you that you know that. And then I might be interacting with someone else who, uh, you know, the gentleman at Christopher Newport university, Jonathan white, who's just an expert in Abraham Lincoln, he will move into quotes from speeches <laughs> in the course of a dialogue. I'm in, let's, let's have, I, I love that. So yeah, that's very cool. I yeah. believe that that, that thing is in everyone. I don't care if it's gaming. I don't care if it's snowboarding. I don't care if it's art. I don't care if it's engineering. I believe that's in everyone. I, I think you're onto something and, and we've just, we've stumbled a upon this ourselves we we measured the complexity of people's thinking along a developmental continuum yeah and when we first started it was pretty much assumed by everybody that the highest level thinkers were the academics no we we have not found it to be true at all it's not true in fact it's not true (laughs) (laughs) the highest level thinkers are the people with an enormous amount of experience and expertise. Hmm. And it always, it's always people with enormous amount of experience and expertise plus more diverse expertise. Wow. So someone who's swum in more than one pool, but done it at a deep level, those are the creators. Like those people are the ones who, who, who have, you know, they just have ideas in their brain that can bump up against one another and come yep. up with new ideas. So it, it's not the academy. It, it, we should not be privileging the academy as the way to learn at all. We should actually be prioritizing expertise or the ability to build skill yep. over time to the point where you have expertise. Yep. It's, it's a way, but it's not the only way. It's a way. It's a kind of expertise. It, you, you put it in its way. place, but it's not the way. And it, and it, you know, when they say people who can't do teach, I don't think that's completely accurate. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people who teach who can also do, mm-hmm. but that is the way it's divided up. Yeah. We divide it up that way. I'm one of the very few people who's both a doer and a teacher. 
and people people want to either put me into the academic box or they want to put me into the business box. My yeah. academic clients, my academic colleagues put me in the doer box. <laughs> and the doers put me in the academic box. <laughs> Which means you're probably doing well. <laughs> but really, uh, ideally, all of us live in different, we don't live in the A box. You know, yeah. we, we actually take part in many kinds of boxes. Yep. And I mean, the expertise that we build becomes broader and more networked. And that just makes our ability to be able to think and do and interact and it just builds all of those skills. Because yeah. I think you're, I think you're absolutely correct. There's, there's too many folks out there who, are, that's not their lived reality right now. That they're waking up and they're excited about what they're going to go and do today. That they're feeling that there's value in what they're doing today. And I think yeah. our uh, how we how we teach is a piece of that conversation for sure. Theo. Thank you so much. I, I really, really appreciate your time today. And I appreciate the good work that you do. I'm going to put all kinds of links in the show notes so that listeners can Thank access you. what you're up to. Is there a way you'd like people to connect with you? And the easiest way to connect with us is through the contact link on our website. Okay. It's, it's just right there in bold. And unlike other websites, we actually respond to our emails usually within 24 hours. <laughs> you do actually. <laughs> That's a priority of ours. Yep. <laughs> well, Theo, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And thank you for asking. Be well. For those of you of a certain age, you will recall the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And you will recall that at the very, very end, even after the credits, Ferris comes walking through and says, you're still here. Why are you still here? That's kind of how I feel right now. I am excited for you to jump over to the show notes and click on the resources that I have provided there. You need to see Theo's work. You need to see how she and her team are working through the thinking to help people better learn. It's really, really cool. It's a lot of fun. I have put a bunch of show notes in there. So if it's safe to do so, toggle over and check out some of what she is working on. It's just very, very cool. Thank you so much for being with us, Theo. Thanks for the good work that you do. Thanks for approaching this work in a different way and helping us explore this fascinating space of how we better learn. Take care, everyone. Be well. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.